I do. I do love the idea. You know, it's like it, you supposing you had a sort of parliament, you know, and it's like 500 people or something. And it's like, all right, here's our 500 random people. And they got to figure out how to run this. Exactly. I think, no, I, would, that, that, I think it would right. be an absolute, you know, pe- I think pe- it would really surprise people. They think, oh, this would yeah. be an unbelievable shit show. It's like, OK, yeah. Gee, imagine that. Number one. What if the right. government sucked? Like, but number two, <laughs> right, right. I mean, like, what what is Congress's approval rating at this point? Like, how much lower can you sink? Coops, which one of us is starting off? Uh, I think it's you. Okay. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek, and I'm Ryan Cooper. And uh, hearty welcome to our uh, try try guest for the third time. Uh, returning champion, Re- returning champion, returning champion. Yeah, welcome, Jeff Wait. Ross. <laughs> Hi, everyone. You knew him by his voice. We didn't even have to say his name. It's that that yeah. sultry voice, that basso uh-huh. profundo. I, I, I was about to try to go like. Hi. There we go. <laughs> it's like I just like I was like hi, and then it just goes hi. <laughs> like nothing came out. <laughs> For all the listeners at home, if you've ever. Uh recorded yourself maybe you know but if you haven't you get really self-conscious about how you sound when you're being recorded and, well uh, i don't <laughs> and no our voices vary so much it's amazing well, i've like, noticed I've well noticed. Maybe, yeah no like i kind of wanted to like try to do a podcast where i just sound like arthur morgan from red dead redemption 2 have you all lost your goddamn minds Ooh, that, we gotta get spross for some like clips that we can just you know it's great yeah um well coops what are we talking about today what uh what did we read with the Spross? Well, we we read, you know, everyone's favorite intellectual and uh, you know maestro of civilizational discourse, Ross Douthit, um, on oh. meritocracy and aristocracy, and basically he he had he had two columns, um, in which he he sort of. He used the death of George H.W. Bush as a kind of jumping off point to say that meritocracy is kind of the god that failed and a poor way for organizing a society. And then when that got a lot of, uh, I think, fairly deserved flack, blowback, flack. yeah, he, he said, oh, the wasps, we need the wasps again. He wrote another column in which he was really just drilling down into his core argument, which is that meritocracy is bad and that what you need is a kind of self-conscious elite. And is that a fair summary, would you say? I think so. Yeah, Yeah, it was, it was like, he wrote, I mean, like, the blowback, it seemed to me, was mainly an issue of, like, people just basically being angry that he kind of, I mean, it was kind of like one of these, he's like, he basically suggested everything was better when, like, everyone in charge of the country was white and male, right? And, like, that was, that, like, kind of got a lot of the blowback. Um, I mean, if we could only make America great again, you know? Right. But um, well, what, what, what was interesting to me about the whole thing is there is this strange overlap between that particular conservative critique and like sort of the left wing critique of society in the sense that like both of them reject meritocracy, I think, as I don't know if like you could say they reject it as an organizing principle or just reject it as like, I mean, it's certainly coming from the left. I think it's more a rejection on the basis that just like meritoc you can't have an actual meritocracy the whole idea kind of as soon as you have an elite that is in a position of hierarchical power 
they perpetuate themselves in perpetuity. They have the structural ability to do so. So meritocracy inevitably destroys itself. This is kind of like uh, the Chris Hayes argument from Twilight of the Elites, which I think he based on previous arguments as well. But what what is interesting is it creates, I think, this interesting like three-way argument where you have like conservatives come in and say meritocracy isn't good um, because it makes elites too confident. It makes them believe they got where they are in their position of power through their own hard work and struggle and superior intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. And it would be better if we went back to the old the old school like wasp elite or otherwise where the elites knew they were elites and you know the aristocracy was perpetuated itself but it was at least aware that it was doing this and so it had like a certain sense of noblesse oblige i don't know if i'm pronouncing that correctly um and then you have sort of the center left uh liberal crowd that comes in is like whoa no no like meritocracy is good we have like diversified the elite we have brought in women we have brought in people of color etc etc and this has made the elite better and then i i I kind of feel like the left or at least me i don't know how (laughs) much of the rest of the left i'm representative of but i come in it's just you it's just just me but like i come in and i'm just like you know maybe like going back to the old wasp model would result in a more self like self-aware elite but i'm just not sure that whether or not the elite is self-aware matters all that much in comparison to the fact that they have power and the elites elites have become self-aware right yeah (laughs) it's like i i'm i'm not sure that you know the elites pulling a skynet and realizing their own nature like actually matters (laughs) um and so yeah so i come in and it's kind of like well i agree that like you know the arrival of a diverse, the gender and racial diverse meritocratic elite didn't actually improve the elite all that much. But I'm not sure going back would matter because we're debating the internal moral quality of the elite. And I just don't, I'm, I'm not confident that matters in any way, shape or form compared to like the importance of, I mean, structurally reforming society and taking down capitalism and all the rest of it, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, baby. I mean, here's a quote that beautifully. I don't know. Did I did I sum up all that well? I don't know. I yeah, liked yeah. it. It's good. I liked it. I got, okay. I got the gooseies, right? We got. Is that a term you know for goosebumps? I goosies? have no idea. Goose. <laughs> I might have just made that up. I don't know. Here's a quote from the Duthit. Quote: One of the lessons of the age of meritocracy is that building a more democratic and inclusive ruling class is harder than it looks. Oh dear. And even perhaps a contradiction in terms. You can get rid of the social registers and let women into your secret societies and privilege SATs over recommendations from the rector of Justin and the headmaster of St. Crotlix. I can't, I can't even pronounce it. And you still end up with something that is clearly a self-replicating upper class, a powerful elite filling your schools and running your public institutions. Uh, so <laughs> there's this, there's this, uh, purpose in Duthit's argument to find a way to have not a better society, not a more diverse society, not a more democratic society, but a better ruling class. And there's such a beautiful giveaway in that. Like, he's trying to come out as the reasonable, compassionate, thoughtful pundit, and fully admits that the uh, utopia for which he seeks is to find a very good ruling class to subject us all to, uh, which I think says it all, uh, like about 
something he's making explicit that is, is otherwise implicit in um, what we might call our representative democracy. Yeah, and and I mean like, there's the the aspect of of maybe over focus on on the qualities of the elite, you know, and like how do we cultivate the learned philosopher kings who will do the good things, make the quality decisions that we all must, you know, have. And yeah, that's that's one aspect of it. And I I think what struck, you know, when, when I wrote a little bit of, of a response to this and I and um after thinking about it a little bit more, you know, uh I think that, you know, he he lands some very good blows I think against the current meritocracy, you know. Uh, but I think it's a pretty open question as to whether um, the the current ruling class is even trying to be democratic or inclusive, or whether it's just like a sort of an aristocracy of quote unquote brains, you know. And so that's that's like kind of two different things. And then secondly, you know, you think about the pre you know previous ages of aristocracy and um. It it really seems as though doubt that is romanticizing the past, and I mean this is kind of the problem with the aristocracy is he like he's trying to counterpose it with the current system and being like oh aren't things better aren't things better uh, weren't they better rather back then than they are today but like the the previous wasp establishment had some really terrible characteristics you know you, like. John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles, um, you know, he talks about George W. George H. W. Bush, but what about his son? Isn't that guy like the aristocrat's aristocrat? I mean, literally the son of a president, same wasp family as his father, and just a uh, you know your classic well, aristocratic fail son. Hard no, but, but see, but but here's the interesting thing, if I may uh, start ranting already, is that. You know, what Rousseau wrote about in his first discourse is that instead of actually, we've lost the appreciation for actual virtue, which is good action, like in service of others and excellence in relating to others. And, you know, quote unquote, civilization basically came up with uh, politeness, manners, civilization, which gave certain norms to indicate that you were a worthy person of respect or honor, as did formal, you know, formalities, titles, uh, being a professor, being, you know, a, a knight, you know, what, sir, all these things replaced actual good behavior and were signifiers of your reputation and so forth. And in many ways, like Trump, right, is shitting all over those bourgeois indicators of you're a good person. So we had people like George H.W. got so much praise across the board, even from people that were, you know, liberal, at least, I don't know about the left, uh, in part because a lot of indicators were met in terms of civility and norms and, and, and all that shit that masked the actual violence of the policies and politics, right? So Rousseau was trying to say that people get, um, blinded to the slavery and the chains that they're in because of this new creation of a system of, of, of norms, right? And so a part of what's going on here is that the right-wingers miss the slavery that was instituted for the masses when it was at least cloaked under the guise of civility and certain respectability politics, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know exactly what doubt that would say about Obama in terms of fitting into his scheme. He's certainly more of a meritocrat than uh, an aristocrat. You know, he's certainly not a wasp. <laughs> uh, anyway, it certainly seems as though Obama is, is closer to his ideal than Trump, right? But that's a really good demonstration of just what you're talking about, Alexi, which is the way that a very a, a manifestly capable, intelligent leader can do stuff that is just appallingly horrible and immoral, namely, you know, when faced with a gigantic financial crisis, like push all of the losses onto hapless, uh, uh, helpless homeowners while protecting his, you know, cronies in the banking system. And uh, no one, basically no one will uh, acknowledge that it happened because it, he's he's too dignified, he's too polite, he's too, he's too virtuous or whatever. Like, it's just, it's like, oh, he wouldn't do something like that. And the fact of him not seeming to be able to conduct something like that or, you know, drone strike American children, no due process of any kind, uh, you see, you see, Ryan, uh, a person so dignified, eloquent, and kind, and, and forthright uh, would would never do something actually immoral. So there must be something okay about the bombing of brown people, and uh, you know, um, signature strikes and all kinds of assassinations based on I don't know behavior patterns rather than even knowing who we're killing. None of that matters because this seems like a ni- he seems like a nice guy. This is basically the liberal version of I'd have a beer with Bush. He seems like a good guy. He can do no wrong. Yeah, Kevin Drum wrote this exact argument. Um, I don't think I could find it now, but it was, it was basically that like facing with the idea of signature strikes, you know, where basically you're killing people. You don't even have any idea who they are. They just fit patterns of behavior that the military came up with. Uh, it's like, Oh, he wouldn't do that because that's evil and he doesn't seem evil to me. So therefore he must not have done it. (laughs) Well, no, but the thing is, I think this is tied to our broader topic of representative democracy. Don't you think Jeff, like the, the fact that like, we don't actually, the demos, the people really rule or govern anything. It's a bunch of elites that we like vote up or down every couple of years, right? That do basically everything that we don't even have much of a hand in selecting who those people are. And yet, right. And yet we think that this is like a democracy. Some people think that. Well, I think um, so that that is flagging another piece we read. But I, I think before we get into that, I can also say, like, I think there's like there's several layers of paradox going on here in the sense that if we're going, at least if I was going to classify like the last, you know, century in terms of like how the elites performed and what forms of elites we went through. um the best performance is probably the 40s and the 50s um, with like, you know, a tail end into the 60s with the achievement of civil rights. But the main things are like World War Two, New Deal, like massive, like momentary full employment achievement, ma- major uh, like equality sharing of prosperity across the board. And then towards the end of that process, like the first real movement towards like civil rights and integrating uh, African Americans into the franchise and somewhat into the economy, at least. Though obviously, there's still a very long way to go. Um, but like, I think you look at that, and that's like an era when the elites actually were answerable to 
the broad masses of people to, if not to like an ideal degree, at least to a degree that's vastly greater than it is right now. Like you had an organized labor movement. Um, you had the civil rights movement. You just had you had a lot of bottom up power going on, right? Like Roosevelt. Like, this is the whole like traitor to his class thing with Roosevelt. It's like he basically sided with the labor unions and smashed everybody else for a little while. Um, and then you get into the sixties and seventies, and I would say the sixties and seventies is where you have like the wasp unbound moment. And <laughs> can you, we title can we title the episode the wasp unbound? Yeah, yeah. sure, sure. I like that. <laughs> So you get the Wasp Unbound moment. What do you get with the Wasp Unbound moment? Well, you do, you do get the civil rights era, but you also get kind of the end of the civil rights era. You get deindustrialization. You get like the rise of modern monetary policy that like climaxes in 1980 with Paul Volcker smashing the working class. You really like tax cuts for the wealthy really kick off in the 60s, like under JFK. Uh, you get Vietnam. I mean, we can go on. So like, you begin to get this, like, you begin to get the failures that actually have characterized the current era where we move into the third form of the elite with the meritocrats, where we have Iraq, Afghanistan, the financial crisis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, like, that gets, uh, like, I think that gets, it's this weird thing where, like, um, the main accomplishment of, like, the elites from the era that Ross, that Ross Douthat is, like, trying to praise is largely an economic accomplishment that contradicts his own ideology, which is like the first weird thing about this. But then yeah. there's also the question of just like, what was actually at work there? Was it that we had a better elite in the 40s and 50s? Or was it that we had an elite, aristocratic or meritocratic, that was actually like answerable to bottom-up democratic power for a brief moment of history? Right, right. And, and when you have a, a politics, like, and I, I've done this whole polis-oikos uh, dichotomy, you know, the polis is the is the kind of... Uh, the community, the broader community that's being served, the oikos in Greek means household. And, and so like it's the root of economics. And like the modern turn is to subvert uh, and invert um, which is on top. And so economics, the households, the many different households are being served by the politicians, by the government, uh, instead of households serving the common good. Right. So uh, to the extent that like the elites were helping various households that had power in um in voting people in and out, right? As long as the economy was serving those people and, and enriching the right people, um, there wasn't too much of a problem with, with the ruling class, right? But as, as Piketty and various others have shown, um, that form of politics, right, where uh, individual households are supposed to grow their wealth in this political uh, economy that we have, uh, the failure of that then redounds back onto whoever's in charge and and it just hasn't been working and so all of a sudden there's all kinds of people and uh reasons we can point out um that uh we can blame for that right but fundamentally it might it might really have to do with the political economy and, and whether it's worked for people right yeah yeah no question no question and i think to your point jeff you know about <clears throat> the 1930s you know an fdr who was a wasp, I suppose, but uh, certainly the best president of all time in his, uh, which, you know, that's uh, that's not saying a lot. <laughs> yeah, uh, I know. He, and, like FDR had his problems. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the, in his <laughs> p- political orientation, he was he was very, you know, elite skeptical and contemptuous of his own class and later in his presidency. You know, as he, uh, 
the way that he personally behaved and the way that he set up his, um, you know, policies. Like when the fir- the first, uh, I, don't, I don't even think he really, just, biographers speculate whether he actually really believed in New Dealism as a, as like a is sort of somewhat haphazard ideology or whether he was more of a progressive personally. But one, one thing he did know that like, when lots of very rich and powerful people told him that he couldn't do something, he was he was pretty much always like, mm, I don't know about that. You guys are probably full <laughs> of shit. And like that, that is like <laughs> a plus characteristic in a president. I don't mean, believe Eleanor, what El- Eleanor probably helps him a bit as well. Absolutely, let's, let's yes. Yeah. Well, and like, you yeah. know, and the question about like wh- who you know is any one person really responsible for like how they behave exactly? Or is those like FDR, the, the, the legend, this, the, the sort of like right, visible symbol point. of this vast point. complex of people, including Aaron Lowe Roosevelt, all these labor leaders, you know, like a various economists, uh, Rexford Tugwell. Oh, and, oh yeah. Know, apparently uh, the, the historian, Richard Hofstadter, you know, the, the paranoid style, apparently his wife had like a huge influence on his work. There's just so innumerable cases uh, yeah. where, where this, um, uh, but Coops, did I you hear know, by the way, true of, uh, go ahead. Who's it true? Of? Just, just as a quick aside, I hear this true of, uh, Robert Lucas, the famous, uh, rational expectations, Chicago school economist guy, you know, one of these like hyper individualists that like he was basically ripping off his first wife for a lot of his, not so much un- of an individual there, Robert, unconfirmed rumors, uh, allegedly, allegedly, I'm going to call him Bob from now on. Yeah. Take that Bob. Uh, you were no, Coop. Coops, did you know that the first um, place we stayed in Greece uh, a couple summers ago, the uh, the man that owned the property was a student of Eleanor Roosevelt's? You did tell me that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Small, small world. Small world. Well, I was going to, w- I wanted to tee off on something that Ryan said, which was um, just like, uh, A, th- this idea that, like, you know, a president or really like any like major executive official, like, is really. When we talk about that person as like a politician, as someone who did things and has like a legacy, we're really talking about like a whole crowd of people that sort of like built the team around them, both in like terms of like official positions and in terms of like, you know, social relations and people who advise them like, you know, behind the scenes, like a wife or something like that. Um, And uh, I think that's a very true. And B, I was like, I was actually wanted to pick Ryan's brain a bit more about like how Roosevelt went about building his team. Because I think it'd be interesting to contrast that with something like, you know, today with like the Obama administration where they, you know, it's like we're going to get the best and the brightest for everyone. And when you do that, you actually wind up pulling from a very small and narrow socioeconomic pond because there's like a few institutions that are at the top of the credential ladder in their respective fields. So you yank everybody from that and you wind up with like people who have like a very narrow set of experiences and a very narrow set of worldviews a lot of the time. So I was wondering like if, like if FDR's team could be held in contrast to that in any particular way. Um, I'm not a, so I'm definitely not a, uh, uh, super like expert on the uh, Roosevelt, like administration exactly. Um, and I do know that, you know, the big part of the brain trust was, uh, was like some pretty high status, like guys. So there was Rexford Tugwell, who was from Columbia. 
There is Adolf Burrell uh, and Raymond Moley. I think they were both. They were also from from uh, Columbia. Um, however, they were like pretty heterodox. Uh, especially Tugwell. Tugwell is like a real radical. He was a big like central planning type of guy. Like he was, you know, like I think you could say pretty pretty clearly a democratic socialist type of uh, in his sort of basic outlook. Um, and, but but there was a it was also just like um, oh what's his there there I can't remember his name, but I I I know that. Uh, in his attempt to um, change the gold standard, FDR went around until he found this like agricultural economist, I think from Cornell, a guy who was like way down the, you know, total nobody at the time. Can't remember his name. But basically he just said, you know what FDR wanted to hear, which is that you can do what you want with the gold standard. That like it's basically crap, and you don't need to worry about it. Um, and so like, yeah, specific lessons. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I feel like it 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 goes to sh- it goes to show the importance of having someone who is. You know, like he he clearly did want to get people who knew what they were talking about, like they had some experience. But at the same time, he was, you know, I think, you know, biographers would agree that in the, you know, the the classic guys like uh, Irving Fisher, the classic economist, he was a he was a guy who was like. Um, you know, in like 1929, like I think that stocks have reached a permanently high plateau. And so when when he was, uh, you know, that when the economy is melting down and all these economists were like, well, you can't do anything, you know, you can't do anything different than what Hoover is doing because that would be irresponsible. And I think, like, FDR had the necessary skepticism that I would say it was almost certainly, like, radically fueled by the collapsing society around him when he was like like if he had been president at a different time he probably would have been like well okay these guys seem to know what they're talking about but when when it's like literally the worst economic catastrophe that has well, ever happened can, can i also say that irving fisher is the nerdiest name ever and possibly the person that will never take a risk i just think like irving fisher is a guy that like plays everything in the most risk averse way possible i'm just saying <laughs> i'm just saying irving fisher you know you want him to do your taxes to quote when harry met sally but you know irving's not going to do it for you in bed nor is he the guy to, to like be bold when it comes to economic crisis i'm just gonna say <laughs> Yeah. But when, you know, during the transition period, you know, and all of the, you know, the big, big shot economists, I'm not, I, uh, I think Fisher may have been among them, but anyway, there's a bunch of people who are just like, all right, FDR, you can't do anything with the gold center. And he's just sort of grinned and nodded at them. He's like, okay, sure. Yeah. Whatever you say, boys. (laughs) (laughs) And then the second he got into office, it's like, I'm confiscating all the gold in the country. And uh, we're basically breaking well, the gold standard. Right this here. also this kind of predated the era of um, meritocracy in the sense that there was this kind of <clears throat> neutral, quote unquote, non ideological technocratic uh, ethos. Right. That is what both the left and the right are critiquing right now. You know, uh, this notion that if we just get like smart people that they can just yeah. like 
pull the levers of government in the correct way, and that's all we need. And, and politics can basically be reduced to a science in this way, which is totally absurd and, and part of the problem. So that predated that notion, I think, right? And, and so uh, part of the failures of, of meritocracy that Chris Hayes documented in Twilight of the Elites and that we've seen, um, and the response to it on the right, like in Trump or in Duthit uh, and on the left, uh, is this neoliberal fantasy that economics, right, which is just oikos, which is just about like how uh, the levers of the transfers of wealth can be kind of um, fixed through governmental means, uh, replaces ideology and uh, ideas of the of the good and normative questions. So it's it's really I think that that's really being attacked from both the left and the right because it's failed because it's not true, you know. Yeah, listen, I've I've had this I've had this interesting experience um, just because like um, my college degree is in filmmaking, so what <laughs> the fuck am I doing reporting on economics? And yet, like I've been doing it for about eight years now, and it I I do like get the funny sense sometimes that like I've come to understand this stuff better than a lot of the people with PhDs, which like makes me nervous to say, but I do kind of. I am kind of willing to stand behind it. and But one of the things that's impressed on me is that, like, I think expertise is important. Um, and here, like, I'm, I'm relating this to the economics field, but I'm sure you could expand this point to other areas. Like, I think expertise is important, but, like, you know, my car mechanic is an expert in cars, right? No one would consider him an elite or, like, a credentialed person. Like, that's a blue-collar role. But I... You know, it's just like he built up knowledge over time by, like, dealing with his particular field on a day-to-day basis or her particular field. I'm sure a lot of car mechanics are female. Um, mm-hmm. And I – there's kind – it's uh, – what am I trying to say? I am – like, I, I'm saying expertise is important, but we have we have transformed expertise into a kind of cultural performance and the possession of a particular set of credentials – and I think there's, like, a lot of things – economics is one, but there are a lot of fields in the world that, like, just a normal person could, like, master with a few years and just the opportunity to do so. So this is a great yeah. point. This is the difference between true excellence, which is a skill which anyone can accumulate through practice, right, and pedigree, which has to do with what's required for you to be recognized as excellence, right? And that dis- like that dis- disconnect, that disjuncture is what Rousseau was attacking, right? Um, so the same first discourse I was talking about on the arts and sciences, he won an essay contest that was supposed to be about how the arts and sciences lead to the purification of morals. And he basically said, no, fuck that. That's actually been the root of all evil. And, and his point was like, true philosophers are great, but Socrates didn't publish shit. He didn't have fucking tenure. Uh, I'm using 21st century language, but like he's saying that like there are people that are artists, there are people that are philosophers, there are people that are good at things, but what gets recognized, reputation gets built off of bullshit. It gets built off of how well you talk, not well, how, not how well you can do things. And as we know in capitalism, it also has to do with your connections and the structures that feed the Brett Kavanaugh's through the system. As long as you, you know, uh, act manly, get drunk and rape women, apparently, then you can get to Allegedly. the Supreme Court. Allegedly, <laughs> allegedly, allegedly, allegedly attempted. Yeah, he's a he's a public figure, Asterix, so I have a wi- I have a wider I have a free speech, wider latitude. I can say things. Public figure, okay. Um, no, but yeah. but so, yeah, that, that's the you know, uh, but no, seriously though. The, the, so the point is, our quote unquote meritocracy is not actually based on excellence. 
right? It's based on who people say should be in charge, which usually has to do with wealth and power, not with actual merit. Yeah, and th- right. and there's a there's a distinction there, which I think is is uh, a, a move that I think that the sort of technocratic neoliberals tend to make, which is worth which is worth drawing out. And that is, you know, so you talk about a mechanic, you talk about a doctor, you know, a surgeon, you know, or an airline pilot, and it's like that's like a very clear case of some, you know, do, for doing something that looks like meritocracy, at least in some ways, even though you know, like a lot of times the people who are flying the plane are just like the people who have put in the most hours as opposed to like pass the most tests or whatever. But at any rate, you know, so here is a very uh, well-defined set of skills that you can develop and you can see very clearly what is what is going on and what the standards are and what good performance means. What good? You can define good. You can yeah. define the good, exactly. And then you tra- you know, you're transferring that sort of intuition that we should have the best pilots flying our planes, or at least like the pilots that fly should be very good, you know, up to a very high standard, very high standard of surgery, uh, very high standard of, you know, uh, uh, doing physics or something, and then you transfer that into the political realm. You're like, oh, I want the smartest, the best people to be doing politics, as if politics is this sort of thing like flying a plane. You know, as if you just well, need to do the, <laughs> you just need to operate the levers correctly. So, and it's to, not to be this. Fair, no, it's it's not mechanical in that way. But to be fair to like political philosophy, literally. Plato's Republic is about this and there's an analogy of like a boat being captained and how the the problem for philosophers is that the the unwise don't recognize wisdom and so you have someone who knows how to like captain the ship because he's looking at the stars to see you know how to do it but because the unwise don't realize that's how you figure out your location and, and find the way that the ship should go they think he's just stargazing and so they kill him and they just like vote for the person <laughs> that basically yeah they, they just throw so this is where politics come in they, they, they put the person that's the smooth talker right that's like the sophist in power rather than looking to who actually knows what is uh worthy and what's necessary to to kind of actually do the thing to which the the person in charge has to has to do right uh, yeah, and then the Aris- the, the move though the move that i'm talking about is is you know maybe plato is somewhat guilty of this but i think you know when you're talking about like 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 John Stewart talking about how he wants to, you know, the president to be embarrassingly superior to himself and so forth there, you know, the, the problem with politics is not that you need people who are competent. The problem with politics is that, that people disagree about what should be done and to hash out those disagreements, right. you need moral theories to no, like, no, no. Yeah, think that, about. that's exactly, that's, and that's why, the, that's why the ancients did not separate politics from ethics and morality. They were bound up together necessarily. Of yes, course. Yes. That, that's the whole, that's the whole point. And it, but modernity separates them and that's the problem. <laughs> the whole well, problem. Yeah, it's with, like, if you're, if you're going, if you're going to equate like a good politician and policymaker to a good pilot, you have to define like, what constitutes successfully landing the plane in the realm of politics and policy? Like, you know, hey, we saved Wall Street. The financial system is stabilized. You know, yeah. 10 million people lost their homes, but the financial system is stabilized. Like, does that count as landing the plane? Like, that's the whole question. Yeah, yeah. And the problem yeah, with technocracy yeah. is it tries to obscure that question. I think like, totally. oh, we all agree because we've defined all the relevant questions out of the, out of the discussion. Well, a cool move that the ancients do, and like Aristotle was big on this, he was basically like, 
you know, just like the human body, if it's well like functioning, if it if if it's healthy, right, it will last longer. Uh, the body politic, if it's healthy, will last longer. So let's look at what regimes lasted a long time and which ones basically exploded or were, like were overthrown. And then we can like scientifically find out what actually goes into <laughs> preserving regimes and what's health. You know what I mean? So like they had a whole fucking methodology for this shit. It's brilliant, right? But we don't do that shit. You know what I mean? But no. guess what? With with Trump and everything that's going on now, looks like shit is not going to last long. You know right. what I mean? And that's a sign of of how unhealthy the body politic is. Well, at least we'll be a nice splatter on the walls of science for future generations. <laughs> a, I, a, a giant, a giant burn mark on like the graph of history. <laughs> Just like everything blew up right here. So don't do that again. Um, huh? Okay, so I want to. So now I want to ask uh, the question. And I think this will get into like some of the other stuff we read, um, but. If meritocracy is not that great an idea, what do we replace it with, right? Like, what's yeah. what's our alternative schema? And one thing that I thought was I one thing that I I don't know if you guys read it, but that I read was this this piece that Helen Andrews wrote. Yeah, um, I was just gonna bring that up. Yeah, I, I'm not sure who it. I think I don't know. It was like in Hedgehog he- Review, Hedgehog and Review. That's right, and a few other places too. But um, the first half of the essay is really interesting because it talks about like the arrival of meritocracy in like the civil service in Britain. And, and, and it's called the new ruling class, the new right. ruling class. The, for those the, that the, the name out. of the essay is the new ruling class. So this first half is actually fascinating just because it talks about kind of like the social and political tensions that come up where it's like the, like today we take it as like just commonsensical that like we should have a battery of tests, you know, and like people should pass all these like, you know, multiple choice answer things to like, be sure they're like the best civil servants in all their their given fields. By the way, as a prof- as a professor, multiple choice is a terrible pedagogical tool in order to test people. Anyway, from sorry. the horse's mouth, people. Um, but yeah, and and she talks about like all like the resistance that this got of like people who had been doing this stuff for a long time, saying like this is a terrible way to figure out the best person for the job. Like, and you know. It goes into kind of like the way this displaced like the old uh, like seniority systems or uh, like even uh, political patronage systems. Um, And it's interesting because it makes you think about just like, you know, okay, political patronage doesn't maybe always get you the best person, but it maybe gets you a person who's like invested in the good of the particular coalition that brought them to power, et cetera, et cetera. So it brings up all those like kind of interesting those interesting ideas. Um, the second half of the essay basically does the same thing Ross that does, which is say what we need is an aristocracy that's aware it's an aristocracy and that like engages in noblesse oblige, blah, 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 blah. Helen Andrews is a conservative. This is not surprising. But the first half of that essay is interesting precisely because it presents a window into the introduction of meritocratic ideas, this moment in history where ideas that we now take is just like I said, commonsensical, the moment when they actually like were introduced into the system and the fact that it created like a massive backlash before they finally won. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I think that, that a useful takeaway there maybe is that, you know, meritocracy has become so ingrained. You think that like, well, whatever, whatever you're doing, you should have to, you should have to pass some sort of a qualification 
exam or something like that. Like you should have to have some sort of credential to be able to get those sort of jobs is is so unobjectionable to think that that if you, if someone's just giving it to you because like you know you know someone's cousin's cousin then that you know then then that is like prima facie like a terrible way to do anything and like the fact of the matter was when that was the the way things were done like you know things were maybe like somewhat less efficient than they are today but like it wasn't like it functioned as a like like there are these very what seemed to us ridiculous ways to to organize you know your sort of like national institutions which work just they they work just fine in their own context. They were stable. They were terrible, but stable. So so the the problem with quote unquote meritocracy is it's like just as terrible, but more unstable. So like the the myth was this, and and there was something to this, right? Like the fact that uh, Adam Smith's right Wealth of Nations was in 1776 uh, published the same right year as the Declaration of Independence. There was this democratizing move right in modernity. That moved away from like bloodlines and, and hereditary aristocracy, right? And was supposed to be eventually what became meritocracy based on your ability to accumulate wealth, right? Your, your oikos, your ability to use uh, the government's ability to protect your property rights to, to become wealthy and powerful. And so merit replaced bloodlines. And that was supposed to be some equalizing uh, thing, right? That was supposed to be modern and liberating or liberal in a sense. But the problem is it's a fucking myth and lie, actually. Like, if you look at the Supreme Court and you see not just Harvard and Yale are the only law schools represented, but the two new justices, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, are from the same fucking prep school, right? This is just <laughs> emblemat- This is just emblematic of the lie, right, that meritocracy actually has something to do with, like, equal opportunity, right? And, and in Twilight of the Elites, there's this beautiful example that I give to my students all the time about like theoretically the most egalitarian meritocracy uh, thing, right? Which is the the best uh, supposedly school in uh, New York City it, that is public is a charter school and it's all based on test scores. So it doesn't matter if you know the mayor, like if the mayor is your father, it doesn't matter who you know, it's all quote, quote unquote merit, right? Just the, yeah. the scores. Except of course the fucking rich kids game the system by hiring tutors who know the test to teach them how to game the test. And so it actually replicates exactly the inequality because there is no such thing as equal opportunity if you don't adjust the actual resource distribution, right? And so like meritocracy is a myth. It's 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 a lie in order to mask the, the social relations and power relations that basically just you know recapitulate um, all of the inequality that stems from the system to begin with, right? And it also lacks all of the the the, the kind of aesthetic pleasure of uh, uh, kind of the the royal family or any uh, <laughs> a, a, right like all the things that like uh, the people who were subjugated before actually were kind of um, pacified with the pageantry and kind of the civility and the, you know, pinky in the air, civility, whatever that's gone too now. Right. And it's less stable. So we have like a less stable bullshit, vulgar version of aristocracy now. Yeah. People, their, their only skill is taking tests. And so of course they're terrible at being in charge of the, you know, the United States because all they're good at is filling in bubbles. (laughs) <laughs> you, you spend your entire life like like b- being a an apple polisher and you create a, a you know it's like it's a 
people who can't find when it comes to practical knowledge, you know. Right. Well, and this is one of the things that like when I was reading Andrew's uh, Helen Andrews essay um, that like it kind of sparked me because I was thinking like it almost like it and it kind of scared me for a second. I was like, maybe political patronage isn't like the worst system in the world just because like. Let's say you get something like an FDR where you have, um, you know, a, an, uh, a regime, a, uh, an administration, however you want to put it, that comes to power, that clearly owes its, uh, its arrival in power to, like, an organized, like, labor upheaval, an organized labor movement, that kind of thing. Um, and then they distribute, like, positions of control within the administration based on patronage. Um, so what you're going to get is people who are in those different positions who are loyal to a particular definition of the good. Like we said, like they have like because this is like a labor like driven movement or like a movement driven by like we need to like democratize the economy, distribute wealth equitably. Like you've defined what it means to land the plane, right? And you are now going to put people in positions of power who like all share that definition. And then getting back to the other thing that I said, uh, just like. You know, okay, they haven't, like, passed all the credentials and passed all the tests. But, like, again, like, most of these fields are fields that, like, you know, you can master from a kind of blue-collar perspective, right? You just, like, if you just, like, you know, grind away at them for a few years, even if you grind away at them in obscurity, you can figure out the main points. So, like, you can get people through the system who aren't going to, like, wreck everything, right? They're going to run it well, and they're going to run it with, like, a good vision – uh, a good vision of the good. A, like, <laughs> I mean, I, you get what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, totally. Look, it's not hard to be Brett Kavanaugh to be like a drunken frat boy who like allegedly molests women and, you know, is the valedictorian and is on all the sports teams. He just happened to be placed in the right prep school. And he's like, okay, I just need to be a drunk frat boy and then I can get ahead in life. I'll, oh, and get straight A's, uh, you know. Yeah. So it's not it's not like that pedigree is especially impressive. It's just very particular, right? Right. Yeah, the and this I think, you know, maybe to round out this 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 to, uh part of the <clears throat> uh discussion is to, you know, um Andrews has a I think the like the the defenders of aristocracy kind of they get they 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 rely on a there is no alternative type of it's like whatever you know meritocracy you get an elite aristocracy is an elite so like you might as well have an elite that at least like tries to do its job well right to try to take the and so you know so she says that uh you know like uh for one thing the minority of families willing to do whatever it takes to get into harvard will still do whatever it takes to get into harvard they have adapted to new admissions criteria before and they will do so again and this brings up i think the um that article that you sent the that the uh this review we'll post it it's a review of a book called uh, the principles of representative government it's called a fresh look at representation and so it goes it goes through the you know the history of representative democracy which is uh, something that was basically invented in the uh, the the 18th and 19th centuries the idea that you have an election you know you create an elect as it were and um, that maybe you know potentially thinking of uh, a a way of selecting people who are you know part of the governing class that is that is uh, uh, random 
might be worth looking into because that's how democracy worked back in ancient Athens. And this, I think, really is an underrated idea um, because we're, I, I should, we're talking about the lottery system now. Correct. Indeed, indeed. Selection yes. by lot. Ancient Athens, selection by lot. Uh, for those that wanted to, right? So you would actually have to say you were interested. But then if you were interested, it's like taking your name out of a hat, basically. All of the citizenry, all of the people would be equally available to be picked to rule in, in various offices. There are a yeah. few, like if you, like there's a very select few offices that weren't um by lots, so like if you were a general and you needed particular skills, right, to fight battles, that's different. But like most posts in the government, right, came from the demos by lot by by random selection. Yeah, and yeah, he, I just want I just wanted to make sure we clarified how that worked. Anyway, Ryan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And here's here's a thing that is literally impossible to game. That that there is no way that that if you're a rich person, you know. Um, and and suppo- supposing you set up your Harvard admissions uh, system, not that Harvard is really, you know, where we should be getting all of our, you know, uh, uh, congressmen or whatever, but you could set it up such that like, okay, you know, we're going to set like a standardized test score, which is like really not that high. You know, it's like you got to have a GPA of 3.0 and, you know, 1200 or whatever in the SAT is like something that's really not that difficult to get that, that like probably like half the, the, the graduating high school students could get. And then we're just from there, we're just going to draw names out of a hat. We're just like everyone who applies, we're just going to pick them at random. You can't do anything about that if you're a, if you're an elite person, if you're, you know, Malia Obama or whatever. Um, and and I think similarly, you know, if you're talking about, say, say, say that uh, a third of the or a half the House of Representatives was selected in this sort of fashion. Could that possibly be any worse than the system we have now? Like, I don't almost certainly not. I think it would no, be a right. huge improvement. Like you can't no, possibly argue me out of that totally. idea. Totally, totally. I well, for a number of reasons. I don't know which ones we want to get into, but like, uh, this is what most of my students don't realize that what we call democracy today is a modern invention that's quote unquote representative democracy, which is actually aristocracy, right? So, like ancient direct, what we call direct democracy is this notion that literally the people or the poor or the masses or everyone um, had equal opportunity to govern, be governed, to propose laws, to challenge laws. Um, you know, today, the, the only form we have of this is, is like there's referendums, there's juries, which are by lot, uh, except the juries in ancient Athens were like composed of 250 citizens for a jury, right? Like, so it's like, really, you get the sense that, oh, they really wanted lots of voices, right? And it was like, lots of random voices. And, and there was truly like the people governing, right? Which is very different from rule by the elite, because the point that Bernard Manet, or however you pronounce his name, is making in the book, and I, I teach chapters from this book, um, he's making a great point that like, necessarily, any form of election right? Like Ryan intimated, the elect is about selecting based on some kind of ranking, some type of hierarchy, right? So you're trying to elect the best on some kind of criteria. And that means you're definitely not doing rule by the people, which is basically supposed to be without regard to who they are or what the differences are, right? Right. We're not, we're not trying, right. Under the lottery system, we're literally, we are literally rejecting the idea that we should be picking the best. And we are just saying, we should pick a random sampling 
that gives us an overall representative population of like the greater population an overall representative elected or set of officials that it truly is just a random sampling to give you kind of like a microcosm of the greater society they're supposed to be governing yeah yeah and i um i do i do love the idea you know it's like you supposing you had a sort of parliament you know and it's like 500 people or something and it's like all right Here's our 500 random people, and they got to figure out how to run this. Exactly. I think, no, that, that, I think it would right. be an absolute, you know, pe- I think pe- it would really surprise people. They think, oh, this would be yeah. an unbelievable shit show. It's like, okay, yeah, gee, imagine that, number one. What if the right. government sucked? <laughs> like, But number two. <laughs> right, right. I mean, like, what what is Congress's approval rating at this point? Like, how much lower can you sink? Yeah. No, but but what what if like the solution isn't about finding the genius that has a certain skill set that we need, but instead have people that actually are tethered to reality and have like some understanding yeah. of the needs. Now, granted, this is in a way what the House of Representatives was supposed to be, right? Like so right. so like the you know the House and the Senate were based on two different models of representation, and um, if if kind of the Madisonian era. Uh, proportions would have would have maintained. We would have like twenty seven thousand representatives in the House today, based <laughs> on our population or something like that, right? So, so like they thought that the House of Representatives was really supposed to be based on not kind of like expertise, but like, oh, you look like me because I'm a farmer and you're a farmer. Let's put ten of ten farmers in the in there, right? right like, yeah. let's just like literally like try to mirror. It's called mirror representation. Try to right. mirror the population. Well, and the Senate, the Senate was supposed to counterbalance that in a way and, and try to be kind of the elites that are going to refine and enlarge. Right. The, the views Senate was of the supposed people. to be the House of Lords, right? Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. So you have the passions and the and the will of the people in the House, and you have kind of like the cooling effect of like the moderating influence of the, the House of Lords, right? Uh, and they they thought this shit through right but like today we don't have any of that like the the representative we have two part- houses of lords yes exactly that's right yeah. exactly yeah yeah um yeah i mean but like imagine that like if i mean you could just imagine something like where we had like twenty seven thousand representatives in the house but we also like what if we just banned like private contributions to campaigns entirely and Done. set up set up some kind of like lottery system to say we will have x number like i don't know i'm just making shit up at this point but like do it do it x number of people can like run for office in any given district and we have some way of sorting them i'm not sure how it would work but then we just give them a pot of public money and say go campaign do your best to get your (laughs) get your message to the people and see who they who they pick spross did you know in ancient athens anybody could just basically show up at the assembly and propose a law at any point i mean that sounds brilliant <laughs> isn't that amazing is that I, would, cool? I, I, I have a whole list i could walk into the house of representatives right now yeah. and be like i've got you guys covered <laughs> and they had to fucking listen to it right but that also inculcated in the citizenry some they felt like oh shit i have power i can do things and so they felt responsible to that power and so in ancient greek the word idiot means private person and private had to do with your oikos or your household affairs right and so like you're an idiot if all you cared about was your private interest and now all we have is a nation of idiots that just care about their private households that's not their fault that's how we've set the system up but like back in the day it was like you had the power to influence things and so you cared about like your ability to do so so you try to figure out hey shit how should we be doing things well yeah it's like i mean just the problem of just like of apathy 
justified apathy. I should say it. Totally, justi- totally. It's justified, totally inculcated, yeah. Justified rational apathy of voters who just look at the government and are like, what the fuck does it matter? Yeah. No, and that's, they're, they're that's right it. to do that. They that's are it. correct to have And that all view. all we do as people and this is Bernard Menet, like this is his point. All we do is vote up or down. And so we're like, are these assholes helping us or not? Nope, they're not. And that's basically yeah. the or, or or like maybe we can have a protest and make them think that we might vote them out. And that's right. our power, basically. That yeah. And I, I think um yeah, I, I I definitely agree. Very good points, but I I do want to pull one one thing out, and and I think illust maybe slightly defend Andrews's like perspective on the elite a little bit, um, pr- pr- problematically perhaps, um, which is to say that you know, uh, regardless of how you're going to like select this this thing, like there is no way around the the necessity of leadership in my opinion that's i think a situation where there is no alternative and i think that 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 the left in this country has been pretty allergic to the idea of having to like unite around like platforms and potentially like you know give people prominence if just by accident you know you look at like the way the way the occupy wall street was set up to where any one person could block discussion you know the idea that you yeah. can have this sort of radically egalitarian thing in which no one ever got above anybody so, else so yeah so that's an anarchist move that is happening again with the the yellow vest in france and, and i agree that is totally problematic um yeah, but, you just and that's the thing you have to think it's and that's a that's a very difficult thing to do because it really is fraught, I think, right. you know, to say, well, but think, you can't get around it either. Yeah, I think and, and this is a thing where it's like, you know, I, I think it's fashionable uh, amongst like a lot of people. I see it on the left, but I think it's fashionable like a lot of places to say, like, no one cares about process. Right. That like everyone just wants to like be able to exert their will. But this is like. This question of leadership and how to like you have to have a leadership. There is no alternative to leadership, but you also have to have a structure, an institutional structure that prevents the leadership from perpetuating itself, that ensures this like this churn and this sampling from the people like in a genuine sense. Like that is a question of process. That is a question of institutional design. Right. And there's no there's no way there's no getting around the fact that you like. You have to figure out that institutional design. You have to like get that right, and this yeah. is like, yeah. yeah. No, I look Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, um, you know Presley, a number of new right lefties in power um, are great examples of leaders who are powerful because of the ways in which they reflect. They're being in touch with the people they're serving, their constituency, right? They have talents, right? They have charisma. They have, like, intelligence. They have various skills that are really important. But, like, unlike Beto, for example, right, uh, that's not it. That's not, like, the end of the story. Their particular skills, right? Those skills are conducive to serving the interests of the left because their ideology is both in substance leftist, but also their procedure is being in touch with the movement itself 
and and dictating how they act in accordance with the the masses, right? So I I think that leader and, and it's super important. Like if you look at Verofacus, right? Like and what happened with with Chipris and and Chipris folding, like you know, I don't know what the idiom would be, like. Coops wet paper. Get, what, yes. What? Yeah. What? Whatever folds really easily, right? Alexei Chipras folded, and the Troika dominated him. But if potentially Verofakis wouldn't have, right? So, like in those moments, the whole tide of history could turn based on great leadership and great particular skills. But that person also needs to be operating in conjunction with a broader movement that sh- you know shows and shares the values that are needed to be represented. Yeah. You know, this uh, This reminds me of the uh, final sermon of Martin Luther King. Do you know this one? The uh, I think so, but I tell should. us. The drum major instinct. <laughs> is, is, is this the one where he calls out liberals? Uh, no. This, Damn it. No, this, <laughs> this is ahead, the, 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 I'll, maybe we can put a little sample in here, but he... Uh, Let's do it. Let's he, have a little he, Martin Luther King clip. He, yeah. he, he uh, talks about how uh, in... Um, when, what is it? Uh, James and John wanted to be, uh, they wanted to be at the right hand of, of Christ. And what, what Jesus did not say was that's bad. You shouldn't do that. What he said was that you have to earn it and you have to earn it by being the most humble servant of, of like humanity, you know, that, that you, you could, that you could possibly be. What was the answer that Jesus gave these men? It's very interesting. One would have thought that Jesus would have condemned them. One would have thought that Jesus would have said, You are out of your place. You are selfish. Why would you raise such a question? That isn't what Jesus did. He did something altogether different. he said in substance, oh, I see, you want to be first, you want to be great, you want to be important, you want to be significant, well, you ought to be. If you're going to be my disciple, you must be. He reordered priorities. And he said, yes, don't give up this instinct. It's a good instinct if you use it right. It's a good instinct if you don't distort it and pervert it. Don't give it up. Keep feeling the need for being important. Keep feeling the need for being first. But I want you to be first in love. I want you to be first in moral excellence. I want you to be first in generosity. That is what I want you to do. For an atheist, Coops knows his Bible really well. (laughs) I mean, best kind of atheist. (laughs) So I I wanted to drill down a bit more on this question of like, like I said, I agree with Raya that like the one thing we are dealing with here is the question of, of leadership which is a necessity, which is there is no alternative to having leadership in a movement, to having leadership in a regime. And so you're met with the problem of first, like how to pick that leadership, how to 
churn that leadership, how to bring in new leadership on what kind of time scale and what kind of manner to like shift regimes, that kind of thing. But also like the question of how to make sure that leadership does not translate into a, you know, a kind of sclerotic elite that is able to just perpetuate itself materially, economically, etc. over time. Um, and like, well, one of the things that's interesting to me about this is like, you know, we shit a lot these days on the founding fathers and the design of the American government, rightly, I should say. Um, because like, you know, the existence of the Senate is terrible, etc., etc. Uh, filibuster's terrible, blah, 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 blah. But like they were the problem they were trying to solve of like how to build institutions to deliver good leadership is a genuine problem. And it is a problem you have to solve and it is not obvious how to solve it. And no. like, yes, they like approach that problem through the lens of, you know, white land owning male aristocracy, uh, slaveholding male land owning white aristocracy in many cases. But like the problem is still a problem. And even if like you're coming at it from a better perspective, you still have to address that problem. You cannot escape it, um, which is like. One of the things that, like, this is one of the things that I find interesting about, like, parliamentary systems in Europe. Um, and, of course, Europe has now subjected itself to the European Union, which is a complete fucking disaster. But, like, individual European countries, the parliamentary system, I, like, I actually think there's something really to recommend itself to, like, a democratic coalition, a majority coalition that can, in fact, rule and, like, implement its policies without, like any neat without like any filibuster without the cooling saucer of the senate or anything like that because like it gives a feedback loop it allows the populace to like experience their particular ideology the results of that particular ideology and to then render further verdicts um and that involves like the whole like snap elections votes of no confidence like regular election all that kind of thing but then of course we could also like build in the whole issue of like lottery selection how that could be applied i mean we could go for days and like you know how could we design a good system like starting with european parliamentary systems and then like building in these questions of the lottery and all the rest of it um but yeah anyway that's what interests me is this question of how to design those institutions to like deliver to deliver good leadership leadership that has a a definition of the good that is actually rooted in the needs of the people and that has some real expertise, but also is like accountable and does not like turn into a self-perpetuating aristocracy. Yeah. Well, look like radical Republicanism in the classical sense, like what Rousseau talked about would be massive assemblies of people. Look, if you've been to a DSA meeting, right? Democratic Socialists of America, it's like a hundred people in a room, right? It's like technically everyone has an equal opportunity to inform the debate and the discussion and the vote and everything, but it's not how it actually works out, right? It's like a tedious, like hours long, uh, kind of mind numbing experience. And like six people actually are the ones that talk. Um, and that's a problem, but like, Often, often. But theoretically, though, procedurally, that's that's the thing. It's like, oh, anyone can talk. And this is the, you know, at, here we go. We're going to talk for as long as it takes. And we can all inform the debate. And, like, theoretically, that's the thing that's much better than having a few elites just represent people, right? Because it's actually something that allows everyone to have a voice. Yeah. Um, well, well so-, then, so how how do we address the problem of the fact that it does turn into, like, a mind-numbing? 
Well, so uh, for, I mean, I could I could rant on this for a while, but like, so here's the problem, right? So you have procedural and substantive issues, and they're related, right? So, so like, procedurally, you want everyone to have a voice, but like at the same time, what you want is also to have a system that allows every human being, every person, right, to be the best person they can be to inform that d- debate and discussion and, and vote, right? And and so we have a problem where now we neither have the procedural access where everyone can be informed and inform the, the decisions, nor do we have the conditions which give people the freedom of time, energy, skill, right, to be good citizens. So, so it's, 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 it's like kind of, kind of Ouroboros feedback loop problem, right? Where like, you know, I mean, you're it, talking about like the fact that everybody's exhausted by capitalism. Yes, of having, course. Yeah, yeah, of course. So, of course, the fucking DSA meetings look like that right now because we're in capitalism and we're in a fucking place where people are just going to meetings. Are you fucking kidding me? After working their asses off all day and right. trying to like pay the so so like you have to envision what it could be like under socialism differently because the human being that will be involved in the democratic procedure then won't be the exhausted fucking like subject that is conditioned by capitalism in all the ways that it is now. You know what I mean? So like, that's the thing we have to work towards. It's, but it's a paradox, but like right. we have to undo the things that make us unable to be the people we need to be. Right. right? In, in, the, in, envision, envision a world where going to like the weekly town hall meeting is actually a pleasant it's, experience. It's fun and, and pleasant. Right. And there's plenty of time. You've thought about it. It's, it's interesting. People aren't stressed. You don't have to worry about the bills. You don't have to worry about your kids. Like that's a fucking different assembly. You know what I'm saying? Here's a concrete example from something I was uh, uh, researching today. Um, com- so the United States is the only uh, country in the OECD which has no uh, national sick leave. Um, every other one, even Mexico and Turkey, have a, pa- a national paid uh, sick leave. Um, however, there are certain states... Um, and one of them's California, big liberal, full of filthy commies and hippies, um, <laughs> which guarantees you a paid a paid leave scheme. And here's how it works: uh, if if you have um, worked for a, a company for uh, thirty days, you can begin to accrue paid sick leave at the rate of one hour per every thirty hours you have worked. And you have to up to a maximum of 24 hours per year. And then you can roll over 48 hours uh, of any that you haven't used in a year. Right. So so this is this is how that uh, it gets much more complicated than that. If you dig. Can, into I, can I just say that accru- the word accrue is a vulgar word that that is just <laughs> should, should never be uttered ever again. It's disgusting. And um, so so anyways, in our, you know, pro- probably the most. Actually, Massachusetts just passed a thing, which isn't isn't uh, which won't even start happening until 2021. But it's like about ten times more generous than that. Anyway, so that's how that's how California system, which was passed in 20, which was started in 2015, works. You get you can you. Um, oh, and then I, I don't know if I mentioned after 90 days of working at this place, you can actually start to claim your sick leave that you have accrued. Here's how it works in Norway. If you have worked for one company for a month, you can get up to a year. <laughs> wow! Yeah, that, you, you know that seems to be a difference in uh, in the hierarchy of values and who we 
who we value, right? Like that's that seems different to me. Right? Yeah, and so you know the Norway Norwegian sick leave scheme is considerably more expensive than the one in California, but uh, you know Cal- for the- whom expensive for whom, right? Well, yeah, that is the question. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, like you could imagine, like you know, uh, not only is election day a national holiday. Um, but you have like mandated early voting across the country, like a month's worth. Well, you could, you could just say you, if you had a parliamentary system, you could say you don't have to vote at all. You just, you just register your, your, uh, your party affiliation and then say like once a month, you, you take a sense of, you just see where everyone is and you adjust the, the value, the, uh, the seats in Congress accordingly. Right. right, and so and, or, you don't ever have to like, do anything, dude. Right. Th- there's so many possibilities. Like the political imagination right now is so just pinched, as as Ryan likes to say, has a great phrase, pinched imagination. Uh, all we can think of is like to have like a quasi fascist who wants to kill all people of color and like <laughs> like just do violence all the time as as our solution. But like, there's so many ways we can respond to the bullshit of meritocracy and neoliberalism, right? Right. 25 hour work week baby and then yeah. like like mandated <laughs> mandated holidays like federal government just basically tells like every local government you give people holidays for whatever like the day of your town hall meeting is or whatever the fuck that is. yeah well that's it for this episode um we just wanted to say before we go the uh wishing everyone a merry christmas happy kwanzaa hanukkah any other holidays you might be celebrating and uh thanks for listening over the last few months yes indeed whatever uh makes you festive this time of year we're we're there with you so we hope you enjoy it and uh ring in the new year well take care last but not least we have a friendly reminder that we have a patreon you can support the show with five dollars a month and get an extra episode every week Uh, We really appreciate the support, and it helps us keep this going. Uh, 